Hey, welcome to this wonderful panel discussion. I'm so happy to have these guests here. Um, I apologize for my voice. It's not at its full strength, but we will, we will soldier on. Um, we are on the topic in God. What does it mean to believe in God? Is God, you know, is the God that, we, that Christians worship a God that philosophers have more or less created with abstract characteristics? Or is this God kind of like an embodied personal God that just kind of appears and does whatever he or it or she or whatever we want to say does, and you just kind of have to roll with it, you know? How does this work exactly? We're going to talk about this and much, much more, um, as well as the book of Exodus today. If you want to get in some questions, um, you can do it by text, or we'll pass around the mic later, and we'll see if anybody wants to talk that way. Um, let me introduce my guests for today. Um, far on the left there, driving all the way from Vancouver, Washington, not Canada. That would be crazy. Um, is Pastor Cameron Marvin. Um, pastor Marvin is the pastor of Theophilus Church in Southeast Portland. Anyone been to Theophilus? That's a dangerous question. Oh, one person. Okay, that's great. Um, <laughs> pastor Marvin has uh, an MA from Portland Seminary um, and has done work and has lived um, in, in North Africa. And, and uh, particularly, I, I asked um, Pastor Marvin in here for a lot of reasons, just to have a pastor on our staff for one day here, but also because he's done work on this question, do Christians and Muslims and Jews worship the same God. How would we even know when we say in God, what is this God with a capital G? So appreciate having you here, Cameron, thank you. Um, Dr. Javier Garcia is professor of theology in the honors program and assistant director of the William Penn Honors Program at George Fox University. His PhD is from Cambridge, very snooty, very snooty, uh, in the UK. Um, he's one of my best friends and he's one of the smartest people I know in terms of theology and thinking about the way that Christians have thought about God, and so it's such a pleasure, Dr. Garcia, to have you here with us. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> and then here on my right is Dr. Mary Peterson. Um, Dr. Peterson um, is the head of the PsyD program at George Fox University. She's a psychologist. Um, her work has spanned many different areas relating to health and biology and the way that Christians think about their spirituality in a holistic context of their entire lives. And so um, to have the, the presence of a psychologist Super important to us. Dr. Peterson, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Yes. I'm delighted to be here. I am the anomaly, though, among these theologians. Yes. So yes. I know my scope, and I'll stay out of theology. No, don't stay out of it. We, we, <laughs> we, know, we know we need you here. I wonder if I could start with you, Dr. Peterson. Do you find, as a psychologist, that belief in God is natural for people? Or do, you, do psychologists have a sense that belief in God is like, hardwired into human existence, or is it something that has to be taught? What would you say about that? Oh, no. I think our model is what we call biopsychosocial spiritual. So, yes, we absolutely believe that people have a spiritual core, and they fill it with something. So if it's not a God, it might be something else. But we know people who have a belief in God do better in life. So we really are free to encourage people to explore that side of them. What do you mean by do better in life? What is that? What does that oh, mean? All the research is so clear. If people have a belief in God, they have better health throughout their life. They have better relationships. They have a stronger, quite frankly, sense of forgiveness and acceptance of themselves. And that's the construct of grace, right? So all across the board, health, psychology, social relationships, if people have a faith that is a protective construct, you bet. Now, that would seem, I mean, if that were true, that it would seem like, oh, if, if I don't believe in God, I'm, I better start believing in God. Like, I want to live longer. I want to have better friendships. 
Is that relegated, though, to like a Christian conception of God? Or is it just if people have any conception of a higher being, you know, kind of like Alcoholics Anonymous, you have like a higher power, you know, or something like that. If you just have, is it, is it generic like that? Or does it have to be like, does that research show that it's specific to any one religion? No, it is a sense of someone, something, creation larger than ourselves. It gives us a sense of comfort. As a pastor, uh, Cameron, I wonder if I could flip this to you. I mean, in your pastoral work, do you find that belief in God comes naturally to people? Do people? Do you think people have an inborn kind of sense of God, or is it something that has to be taught, or how, how do you think this works? Yeah, I think um, pastorally, it this. I'm, I'm usually faced with this in moments of, of crisis. Is when this really like comes to the surface. I can't count how many times I have prayed with atheists, uh, self-proclaimed atheists, uh, very adamant about their atheism in a moment of crisis because there's something that just wells up inside of them during that moment that needs hope, that needs something, um, n something beyond this material world that they can connect to uh, in that moment. So um, I experience that quite often, actually. Yeah. Do you, I mean... When you, when you survey, Pastor Marvin, kind of like the, just the pastoral theological landscape of the Portland area, this area, is this a particularly secular place? Are there a lot of people who believe in God? What's, what's kind of the spiritual landscape that you work with around here right. in terms of like God, like what people think about God and so on? Totally, yeah. So secular, yes, uh, but I think it's important to understand that secularism, secularism uh, <laughs> is uh, in very much uh, is very much connected to uh, uh, a spiritual story or the Christian story or it's uh, it's a contemporary term that we use uh, anyways I won't get into that but uh, it's you'll be very hard pressed to find people in Portland in southeast Portland and I've talked to a lot of people that don't have some connection to uh, Christianity in particular in their story. Um, not everybody, but uh, spirituality, faith, uh, and a connection to Christianity uh, is really prominent. It's, it's uh, embedded in the culture, um, but how people interact with that, how people are either pushing back against that, uh, um, wrestling with their experiences of what it means to be Christian or how that has been um, how that has played out in their lives is very much a part of the story of the culture of Southeast Portland, where I pastor. Yeah. I wonder if I could ask Dr. Garcia from a theological perspective, I mean, just bringing in, like, any resource that you can think of, like, is there theology on this question, like, complex Christian thinking on whether belief in God should be natural or how that works? Mm. Well, it's funny, as we've been talking, I can't get the name Friedrich Schleiermacher out of my head. Who can, who can who get can, the name who Friedrich can, Schleiermacher right? out I know of that's head. what you're all thinking. It's all in your um, heads. But this is a, a theologian uh, who has a kind of mixed reputation, uh, but he talks a lot about the feeling of absolute dependence, mm -hmm. right? So that all human beings are born with this kind of feeling that there's something greater, there's something um, transcendent, and they yearn and long for this, this thing, this, this being, this God. Um, and so it's interesting just, you know, encountering a lot of secular people in uh, Portland. I spent a lot of time in Portland, uh, and I have conversations, and there are some atheists who say to me, I want to believe, right? I have, you know, I, I want to have this kind of happiness quotient, right, that uh, Professor Peterson was talking about. Um, 
that you know there's so many studies that show that people are happier with a, a certain level of belief but I can't bring myself to believe right or you know I have this feeling that I want to believe but I, I don't know how right mm. and so I think Schleiermacher is at least helpful in giving us a sense that um, there is a broad um, yearning or longing in the human spirit uh, that that cries out, right? And this is often the case in, with people in need, right? At the um, bedside table when you're sick or dying, um, in moments of crisis, but some people when they have children, that's the moment when they kind of wake up and they're like, wow, I, I am in total need of something greater <laughs> than, than who I am in my capacities, right? Um, and another thing that I've been thinking about um, is just, you know, a lot of people in terms of apologetics will argue that, you know, uh, the world has become more mature, we've kind of grown out of this uh, default belief, right? But I don't know, I always say to them, I'm convinced that if so many people throughout time have believed in God, how is that not a good argument, right? That there must be something out there, right? Or at least that, um, you know, whether it's whatever religion you're talking about, whatever time period that you're talking about, from the pre-Socratics um, to today, you know, if you're born into the world, there's a sense that you are somehow uh, propelled into a life of searching, right? And searching for something greater. Mm. Um, and so, so yeah, I think, yeah, if, who am I to kind of counter that basic instinct in the human spirit? Um, so that's, that's what I'll say for now. I wonder, just an open question to anyone on the panel who wants to jump in. What would you say to somebody who said either, either I am an atheist who wants exactly what Dr. Garcia said, like I want to believe, but like, what am I supposed to do? Or if somebody said, I kind of grew up in a Christian tradition and that belief has kind of slipped away from me. Um, I don't know how to get back to it or even if I want to, but I'm willing to explore. What's the next step? Turn to the pastor, huh? <laughs> oh, gosh. Save us, pastor. Right. <laughs> um, you know, I think that, that that question is rooted in a story. Um, and, you know, we all have a story, and how God plays into that story uh, is very personal, and uh, I have found pastorally that uh, in situations like that, um, being present and, and being attentive to what is lurking underneath that desire, and yet that simultaneous desire to draw toward God but this instinct or this uh, uh, push away, this resistance of God or, or spirituality or whatever it is, um, there's, there's wounds uh, behind that. There's, um, uh, there's just experiences that play into that. And so I find that I am less helpful uh, providing uh, advice to that person uh, uh, by me speaking and more helpful by taking a posture of listening and learning as to what is behind uh, that that draw uh, mm. if that's helpful at all totally yeah you want you want to get in on this dr. Peterson go sure. ahead I'll follow yeah. up here though okay yeah um, I guess uh, similar to pastor Marvin um, really it's about building a relationship with that person because I think Historically, now we're in, s we're in a, a very complex time, right, where um, there's this history with Christianity, there's this history of wounds. Um, many times the church is an obstacle to people believing, and so 
bad experiences within the church, bad experiences with splits in the church or debates that uh, we can't seem to come to agreement on. And so people from the outside seem to be just uh, uh, blocked in some way from even starting the conversation, right? So I think ideally um, you would start a relationship and somehow be able to incorporate um, scripture within that, right? Maybe a reading of the gospels, an introduction to the person of Jesus who uh, is quite surprising and quite shocking in what he actually says, right? And so um, if we can kind of get beyond these, these barriers, which are very true, this kind of trauma or experiences that, that um, draw people away from God, but actually bringing uh, people back to who Jesus is, I think that at least is a beginning to bringing them into the community of Christ, right? And so, um, yeah, so I, I think it's a complicated process of um, listening and then also introducing, just like you would introduce somebody to another person, right? Uh, and hopefully that would develop into maybe developing a spiritual life and um, introducing somebody to a church. But I do think, um, you know, as, as you were speaking, Pastor Marvin, I was struck by uh, this uh, kind of movement of spiritual but not religious, right? So um, there's this very strong anti-institutional um, uh, impulse in our in our region, especially, but uh, I would say, you know, in the West generally. Um, maybe that's too big a statement, but whatever, <laughs> I made it. Um, and so, uh, so, yeah, people want to be spiritual. Things like yoga are appealing, right? Or um, the Eastern religions seem to be have a real draw because you can be spiritual without being religious. You can have a sense of uh, the transcendent while seeing like a, a sunset um, while not ascribing to a certain set of rules. People don't want the commandments, right? People don't want to be told what to do. They don't want to enter an institution. Um, they don't want a hierarchy. They don't want to submit to anyone, right? And authority is very contested. So uh, individualism and having your own autonomy, autonomos, my own law to myself in Greek, um, that is the kind of impulse uh, that I think we feel very strongly in our society. So uh, I do wonder if there's a way to backdoor people in. Um, and maybe that actually does create a very healthy sense of what the church should be. Uh, as you were saying, Professor Peterson, um, you know, uh, Christians should, in theory, have more forgiveness and acceptance for who they are, uh, and almost an expectation of fault and folly, yes, right? Um, but uh, if you're able to bring people in who've had these difficult experiences, maybe that actually creates a better community, right? Where um, we're in community with each other and in communion with Christ, with an understanding that you know we're gonna we're gonna mess it up. I agree, and I I appreciate that, Dr. Garcia. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to build on what you just said about perception of the organized church. So psychologists are largely a secular group. That probably doesn't surprise anyone. And I have been involved for years on state boards and national boards, and I go back and forth a lot. And I can't tell you over the years how many colleagues I've had who are like, what's with that? Mary, how in the world do you do psychology and Christian, right? And so it's an honor to try and explain that. But I was placed at this one dinner, and I knew they did it intentionally, the organizers, against somebody who was so anti-Christianity, anti-faith. He was a leader in the gay community, a brilliant psychologist. So he sits down next to me. I'm at this table. He sits down next to me, and I introduce myself, blah, 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 where I'm from. And he said to me, 
I just need to be really clear right now, I am opposed to religious persecution. And, right. you, and you said, great, I'm a religious persecutor. That's what I do. I, said, I just looked at him and I said, well, me too. <laughs> you know, like who's in favor of religious persecution? But as you're saying, Dr. Garcia, that's been people's experience. So I think touching somebody who is seeking what I'll invite you to do is think about the last time you had a conversation with somebody who was suffering, who was in pain. I mean, right? Just take a minute and think. And I would suggest that because we bring God's grace, this redemptive value of suffering, I know that somebody's suffering is going to be redeemed. I know God can make something sacred out of that suffering. So when we go to the messiest places with people in their lives, we do so with this grace, this absolute confidence of life can stink and God can redeem that. So it's that twofold. We can go to the messier places and we can do it in a different way. We can do it in a way where we witness to the saving grace and hope. Yeah, I like that idea. It also sparked in my mind thinking about, so entering. I've got my own mics. You know, I'm doing two mics. This is crazy. Yes, that means he's twice as important. Um, so, no. so you're talking about entering in, in, in the place of, you know, suffering, like that being a touch point to God. That sounds like really meaningful to me. I also think like hearing, hearing uh, Pastor Marvin and Dr. Garcia talk, like this idea that, this kind, that there's a desire. Like if there's any desire at all, like even if I'm saying, I used to believe in God, I don't know what I think about this, I kind of want to get back into it, but it feels vacant. I don't know, I think already all the material is already there. Like that's, if, you're, if you say that, it sounds like you're saying there's a desire there somewhere in you. And that's a place right, that sounds like a place right there where God would work. Yeah, and I think uh, some of the disconnect is we live in a world of like competing ideologies, right? So we're, we're constantly trying to figure out, well, what is the absolute right way to think about God and to, to experience our spirituality and all of these types of things, when in reality, like the most funda fundamental part of our being is drawn toward relationship, right? To connect. And so uh, if, if that is what, you know, I think kind of a stain, it, it has some good reasons behind it, but um, apologetics within the Christian tradition, especially contemporary apologetics, is, uh, you know, fixated on defending the faith through argumentation, uh, and I think a lot of times that causes a rift within that relational component of our spirituality that is so central to, um, to our faith. And this question about whether God is accessed relationally, like you're saying, or through some kind of argument is a live topic in this class, and we're gonna come back to it. I wanna go, we have a student question here from the gallery. I'm gonna pass the mic, and we can go from here. One argument that I have heard several people make when I've been talking to them, secular people or people who are spiritual but not Christian, is that they believe a lot in the power of humanity to do things. They're like, oh, look at all these great things that humans have done over the years we don't really need a God who's interfering with that. So, I mean, I can believe that there's something spiritual out there, but nothing that's going to get in the way of my life. 
And so I don't really feel that I have a good way to argue against that because to some extent, I believe that humans can do all sorts of great things too. So I can't just be like, you're wrong. So do you guys have any good ideas for responses to that? And you know, just the idea that we don't want a God that interferes because it'll mess up the things that humans do so well. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Humans are pretty great. Totally. Dr. Garcia could probably speak to this better than me, but I think that uh, it's interesting that uh, it's such a fundamental part of the Christian tradition, our church history, if we have an honest look at the story of the church, um, they very much thought in those same lines, like the reason why we have schools or hospitals or whatever, like are birthed out of deep-seated Christian conviction, like these are part of the Christian story. Um, And I think it's premised upon this idea that this Christ character changes us entirely and that our humanity is a part of that story and us giving our humanity uh, and utilizing our humanity is um, a part of how we exercise our faith. And so, unfortunately, there's been that disconnect that I think needs to be reconciled within the Christian tradition. Well, thank you so much for that question and for braving the mic. It seems like um, you've started a a revolution. There's some (laughs) other people who are interested. I'd like to answer the question a little bit first, though. Um, So, uh, you know, when we assert things in the creed positively, we're also asserting things, uh, what we don't believe, right? Which is what you guys have been talking about on the previous panels. So when I hear the phrase, in God, in some ways, I you know I wonder if part of that is you know m- this is going to be a circuitous way of getting to what I want to say, but you know we want to believe in ourselves. We live in a YOLO culture, right? Okay, you want to live your own life, your best self. You want to live to the top of your ability. There's this kind of pressure on you to experience the best of everything. You know, the five star life, right? <laughs> uh, on Yelp, right? Um, like you gotta have. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a Yelp rating for you and rate you on Yelp. Yeah. Okay. Point. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I hope I get five stars. Yeah. But yeah. We'll so you know, it's all about the Instagram. It's all about just living your life. And so there is so much focus on on humanity, on how we live. Uh, and there's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of anxiety about uh, how to curate your image, how you are perceived by other people. Um, and so maybe that does reflect a belief in humanity. This kind of uh, morality of self, this, you know, selfie culture, this, the self-ism that we kind of focus on. David Brooks has written recently on this. Um, and so when we assert that we believe in God, we assert that we believe in something beyond ourselves, better than ourselves, right? Um, and so I guess one pushback that I would have to that argument is, okay, humanity has a lot of uh, good things, you know, uh, I'm trying to, I'm struggling to find something. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the development of technology, cul- altruism, culture, um, art, beauty, things like that. But um, I do, I mean, maybe I'm just like dark, but I do think humanity has a lot of dark elements, right? And um, whether you want to call that sin or, you know, fault or whatever, um, we need to believe in something beyond ourselves and better than ourselves. Because if you just believe in humanity, I think you're going to run across some some issues. And yeah, I think this question too, I mean, if you're going dark, why not go a little darker? I mean, you know, there were these things that happened in the 20th century that left, maybe people are more like our grandparents' age, let's say, having maybe different thoughts about humans' potential. Um, 
in Europe in the 20th century, in the, right in the middle of the 20th century, right in the middle of the cultured pinnacle of European civilization, a group tried to round up a particular group, another group of people, namely Jews, as well as about six million other people, and tried to murder them off the face of the planet in a thing called the Holocaust. Like, you know, if you stare into the face of something like that, it's like people are capable of that too. Um, not to mention nuclear war. I mean, we know that there are a lot of nuclear weapons out there. They've been only, only been used in a very limited way. It may be, I mean, this is just like reality on a Friday morning at 9.30. It may be that nuclear weapons are used in a serious way in our lives. It's a fascinating thought experiment, maybe for a good sci-fi novel or something, but a thought experiment to think, what would people think of humanity after a nuclear exchange? You know, would this, to the student's good question, like, would, would, would someone who says that, would any of us be saying, yeah, humans, we invented nuclear bombs, you know? I think that that kind of attitude can shift, could shift dramatically even within our lifetimes. I mean, that's possible too. So we kind of live in a weird moment when maybe it's been harder than at other moments to address a question like that. I don't know. Yeah, and I think, I mean, if you look at the history of the 20th century, um, which some people have said that, you know, the 20th century really be begins in 1914 and ends in 1989. It begins with um, the First World War and then with the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, and so imagine living in that generation where you have experienced one of the worst wars, um, you know, the Great War, as it was called, the First World War, which basically decimated Europe. Um, and then you have a little break, right? Uh, and you have the Weimar Republic, which is just in Germany, like um, <laughs> the most horrendous experience of like inflation, economic um, hardship. And then the Second World War, right? Devastating, once again, uh, the Holocaust, you know, basically the most horrendous event in human history. And then after the Second World War, you go into uh, the Cold War, right? And people are spying on each other, like people are getting killed because they might be communists. There's all this suspicion everywhere. So I think we're living in a very special time where it's kind of weird, right? Like we have all this positivity and we want to kind of believe the best about ourselves and about humanity. But we've also had this strange amnesia about what has come before, right? And so um, one, of, one of the things that I study is uh, the 20th century theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who um, was one of the few voices uh, from the very beginning of uh, Hitler's rise to power in 1933 who was opposing the Nazis and was eventually killed for it. Right. Didn't he try to assassinate Hitler at one point? <laughs> uh, well, he didn't he, personally he try tried to, to assassinate, he but group, he was yeah. part of a conspiracy and was kind of the pastor to those, to those uh, members in the conspiracy. And Hitler was like strangely good at like evading bombs. You know, there were a lot of attempts on his life and he just would like, you know, um, they just wouldn't kill him. Uh, and so, so yeah, uh, a month before uh, the armistice, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed for being implicated in this conspiracy. But the point being, you know, if you're Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you're not going to have a high view of humanity, right? Um, you're going to have a very realistic view, and it's going to be pretty dark, right? Um, and so I wonder if we can check ourselves uh, before we wreck ourselves, which we will do historically. <laughs> but if we can check ourselves before, uh, you know, we kind of erase history and forget some of the, the dark uh, chapters in our past. I wonder if I could change gears here just a little bit. There's so much that could be said about this, and there's so many more topics we want to talk about. We can circle back to any of this. Um, <clears throat> I wonder if I could go to Dr. Peterson on this question. In my lecture this week on Monday, I, I tried to make a suggestion. Maybe it's wrong. Maybe it's right. I suggested it. That when we look at the book of Exodus, for example, 
um, and, and the way that that story is experienced by Israel, that the salvation that they experience, the freedom, is actual, literal freedom in their life. They actually get out of slavery. And I tried to do this by suggesting, think of the story in kind of a kooky way, like say Moses had come down and said, hey, how about we all get free in our hearts, like inner transformation? I mean, was that, is that a fair way in a Christian sense, do you think, to talk about salvation as something that actually happens in our lives? Or do you think it would be better to think of salvation, even on psychological terms, as something that happens inside of us regardless of what is happening out here, if that makes sense. It does, it does. And I thought about that because he gave us prep questions, although we're supposed to be very casual and spontaneous. Thank you for mentioning it out loud on the recording. It's yes, great. oh, sorry, sorry. He wants to make sure that we know what, you know, kind of the context is. So what I would say is my therapeutic approach is around congruence between values and beliefs and behavior. And so what I think is internal or inner transformation might be part of a developmental process, but it's also bi-directional, right? If you value relationship, right, and you value authenticity. And see, I'm used to working with people in pain. I'm not used to working with people who think, aren't I grand, life is grand. Hmm. I'm used to working with people who've been hurt or have family members who have been hurt. And holding the dialogic, right? That we're made in God's image and we're also contaminated by sin, right? So that's who we are. And then if I piggyback on your point to extend it, when we work with people who gain insight I'll tell you, insight, personal insight, awareness, has to be paired with an and, right? So if you're in a relationship with a friend and they do something pretty crummy, you know, like they gossip about you or they let you down or don't show up for something, inner transformation could be I forgive them, I accept them, I understand they're broken just like I am and they screwed up. And I would say, that's great, and, and, what are you going to do about it? Are you gonna have a conversation? What is the and? And so I think that then you see what happens if somebody has a conversation, you can see then how that potentiates, that strengthens that inner transformation. So I think as people are internally transformed by God, it calls to an and of action. And as we lean into that action, what happens to the inner transformation? Right? It continues. It strengthens. And then it has this really nice spiral to it. Mm, yeah, I like that. It's a both-and approach. It's not one or the other. Yeah. I don't know, though, theologian, what do you think about inner transformation versus outer action or pastor? I think you nailed it. I don't, I don't have anything yeah. to add to that. As long as Pastor Marvin has the mic, let's go speed round. Another question. Do Christians... Oh, we have a first follower. You know the research on first followers? Yes, I do. That it's, well, it's the we second... We have one right there. It's the second follower. So we have another student question. Why don't we go to the student question? Go ahead. Do you, do you want to bring him that mic? 
So uh, to follow up on the uh, you know belief in the great works of uh, hum humanity, um, uh, Pastor Marvin. So you said that you have spoken with many atheists and prayed for them, prayed with them. I know that atheists may not generally believe in God or a higher being, but I know they believe in something. And according to all the different people you've met who don't believe in God, what would you say they believe in the most? And what gives them joy and happiness? And, and what makes them get up in the morning, you know? Yeah, that's good. Wow, that's a great question. Wow. Um, fantastic question, actually. Let's see how I can answer this. You know, I think um, the most common theme that I hear uh, people cry out for is a sense of belonging and a sense of relationship. Like, and those are connected, right? So, um, I think at the most fundamental level, they believe that there is some power in uh, a link between things or, or, or people or entities, um, that, that there is uh, some bond that, that exists that, that contains a sense of power and there's a sense of hope uh, in that. And, oh gosh. Um, struggling here. I, I <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, well, one other thing that I've noticed in some of the friends that I've, that I've made in Portland um, is social justice. And this is very interesting to me, right? Because you have um, people who are convicted deeply about injustices that they see in society, right? On a societal level, on a personal level, um, people who've been hurt, but there are systems, it's systemic oppression, you know, there's kind of People are hungry for change, and they're hungry to um, improve what they see around them, right? And so there's this kind of cry for social justice and popularity of social justice. Um, and so, again, it might be just like a, a moral impulse, right, that things should not be the way that they are, um, you know, whether it's around racism or sexuality or um, equal rights. I mean, people really rally around uh, certain issues and certain uh, causes, right? But then I ask myself, how can those causes really have any grounding, right, if there isn't something greater or a greater justice, right? Because there's so many um, injustices that we don't see resolved on, on this earth, right? So, but I do, I do think that that wakes people up in the morning, gives them joy or purpose, is somehow to, um, to try and fix the broken world that they see. Totally. So, and, and I think that the, the underlying, what I was trying to go with this relationship is deeply connected to that, is that if we tap into our diversity or our collective perspectives on this world and our, and our talents and experiences, and we pool all of that together, that our collective humanity can change this thing. We can be different. We can fix stuff. And so I do think that the question over here was, is very much connected to the transcendent hope of our time and place, that 
together, we rally together, we put all of our heads together, we put our power together, we put and we work together as one unit, um, then we will fix this mess. We will fix our brokenness. Uh, and I see that as kind of an underlying hopefulness mm -hmm. within our culture. Mm -hmm. This is all so good. We could keep going. We only have about three minutes left for the panel. <coughs> There's a huge question I wanted to float out there. Someone asked it by text, and I wanted to get to it. Specifically the question, and I'll give a shot at a quick answer, and then if we can get a little flurry of things, and then we'll kind of be done. Um, do Christians, Jews, and Muslims worship the same God, fundamentally? Or is there something else? Um, my reaction to that, just off the cuff really quickly, is it would seem that you know these three religions that are monotheistic, they have one God, should worship the same God. Like, who are, they, who are Jews worshiping if they're not worshiping the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the, the God of the Old Testament? That is the Christian God. The problem is like this whole thing about Jesus <laughs> for Christians, which actually ties into another text that someone sent. What role does the Trinity play in all this? It's one thing to say, I believe in God. Okay, but what is God? We haven't even gotten to that yet in this class, right? Like the Christians have a sense that God is expressed somehow in what we might call three persons, um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I guess one kink in this, one chink in the armor of, of this argument, like, yeah, we all worship the same God. Anybody who worships God, we're all worshiping the same God. For Christians, it gets really specific, though, in the person of Jesus. So if you don't worship Jesus as God, which, as I understand it, Muslims do not and, and Jews do not, how are you worshiping the Christian God, actually? So I think that that's sort of like a problem for an easy ecumenism or an easy meeting place here. I don't know, does anyone else want to jump in on that? Literally one or two minutes here, we would love. Um, I can take it from the psych standpoint, but go ahead. you want to go? Okay, yeah, so I've interacted with lots of Muslims. I lived in North Africa for a while. And it's fascinating because I ask the question, like, from what grounds are we asking the question? Like, is it a historical question? Uh, because, yes, all three religions trace their, their faith tradition back to the person of Abraham and his story, Abraham and his story. But they all interpret that very, very differently. Um, and just like you said, that Christianity is premised upon Jesus being a part, and we have this Trinitarian nature of the Godhead, three existing in one, uh, Islam has a creedal statement as well. And a part of the fundamental, fundamental expression of faith within Islam is this confession that Muhammad is the final prophet of Islam. And that's a part of a, a creedal statement that they make to profess their faith in Islam. So uh, I think that there is some value, though, in saying, what, why are we asking the question? You know, we are really good as a culture in differentiation, <laughs> in pulling apart. We just kind of naturally go there. So we're looking for ways in which uh, we can highlight from like a Christian apologetic standpoint how I am different than Muslims or how I am different from Jews so that I can then prove myself over them as being somehow more right or, or having the right way of looking in the world. Wherein there's a lot of uh, scholars now that are calling us to, and pastors and leaders, to maybe think about that a little bit differently and to look for ways in which we find common ground and build from there uh, so that we can establish ourselves on this relational component and then, uh, and then go to a place of differentiation from, from this common ground that we stand mm -hmm. upon. 
So Miroslav Volf is a theologian who kind of has led the way in that. He wrote a book called Allah, where he, he asks this question, is Allah God? And um, that's his take on it. I think it can go down dangerous roads, and I've tried this with a lot of my Muslim friends, um, where we're not being uh, honest with one another if we're not um, uh, truthful with the fact that our conceptualization of God is very, very different. And that has ramifications with how we live our lives, how we worship, uh, all of those types of things. And so it impacts our lives in significant ways. Yeah, I can be short. Had these conversations with a lot of people. Mary, what's the essential tenet of what you believe? The Trinity. God is a creator. We have a creation narrative. So we have respect and honor, all part of creation. God is also relational, which is the Jesus thing. And I say that, you know, God could have saved us any way he wanted. He chose relationship. And then I go back to every psychologist, you know, change is bi-directional. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And the Holy Spirit changes us so we're better in relationship. We honor creation. They all work together. So that's what I would say. Creation, relationship, inner transformation. Would you please join me, class, in thanking these panelists for this talk today.